0: Hello, I'm Frederick Gerten in Malmö, Sweden.
1: And I'm Leilani Farha in Ottawa, Canada.
0: Very welcome to our first Pushback Talk. It's like, you know, we did this journey making the film Push. And that was a journey trying to understand why the prices of housing going up everywhere, why it's so expensive to live in our cities. And I got to know Leilani three years ago. I found you on Twitter. It's a good place to find good people. <laughs> and, and since then, we've been talking about these issues and together trying to understand what's happening. And one year ago, the film Push was released. Opened up and had well, the world premiere in Copenhagen. Since then, it's played in many, many countries, both on theaters, on special screenings, on broadcasting. It's still out to be still to be released in the U.S. It's happening quite soon. But also, when we kept traveling with the film, we've also learned so much more. So it's been an amazing amount of knowledge coming in, and we hope we can share a little bit of this in this podcast. But today, it's a little bit of a recap of what we've seen. And one of the person we met was uh, the amazing professor, Saskia Sassen.
2: Prices go up in a neighborhood that is fixed. That's one thing, everybody understands that part. And then they should understand that at that point, another actor might come into the picture. A monster that nobody can see, that nobody really understands, language is incomprehensible. And then they can maybe be curious and say, let me check out that monster. Who is this monster actually? What is
0: happening here? Leilani, how do we understand the monster?
1: The monsters are private equity firms, they're pension funds, they're asset management firms, um, institutional investors. And what, what distinguishes them is that they're, they're putting their money in housing, but they don't care about housing at all. People call them landlords or corporate landlords, but in actual fact, they are financial folks and they're looking to make money and they use housing as their vehicle.
0: In the film, both of us hear about this company called Blackstone, which actually, to be honest, I didn't know so much about before making the film. And maybe I still don't know so much because they're so big and it's almost impossible to understand what they are. Mm. We only know that they are the biggest private equity firm in the world. We also know that they are born through crisis. <laughs> Whenever there's been a crisis, they've been growing. They started... First big growth was in '87 with the stock market crash. They grew enormously after the 2008 crisis. They are now f- more than four times bigger than they were in 2008. So that's and their owner is it's it's very rich people. The owner, the the the, the CEO Stephen Schwarzman, is good for ten billion dollars or something. Yep. Small some pocket change for the rest <laughs> of us, but still.
1: Mm. Yeah, so I mean, Blackstone is the monster in a way, the monster because they really established, at least by my understanding, they established the model that other monsters are now using. We've been
0: saying this over the years now that that uh, f- for these the new landlords, their clients are not the the tenants of the homes. Exactly, it's actually the investors. Absolutely, so they are actually promising something else. But the monster is complicated and there is many different uh, sections of this. Um, We have a little clip from the film where you actually, when you start to look into Blackstone a little bit. We're
2: the largest real estate private equity firm in the world. We've got investments in people around the globe. But by keeping our business entrepreneurial, we can move very, very quickly. John Gray. Is the global head of real estate for Blackstone Group, which is the world's largest private equity manager. So, one of the uh, markets you went into was single family homes. And I know you have a big portfolio. Was it 50,000 or? Yes. Tell us about that. So, how do you uh, even find 50,000 homes to buy? You need a a global financial crisis for that to occur. Um, You're sitting around in 2011. You're saying, where is there a large pool of assets? Uh, that are going to be sold by financial institutions um, at big discounts to underlying replacement costs. And it was pretty obvious it was single-family homes. Um, let's spend 25000 or so fixing them up, and then let's rent them out and make income-producing assets out of them like an apartment business but just not in one large complex. But if we do it in enough scale...
0: So, Leilani...
1: <laughs> I still shake my head when I hear that.
0: John Gray of, of Blackstone. Why do you shake your head?
1: Well, because it's so clear. I mean, I guess they are best placed to describe their own uh, activities, but it's so clear from that clip and from their description that what they care about is money, and they will make money off of the backs of people who are really suffering i mean when he says in that clip single family homes is you know the asset class that we want to go after i mean single family homes those were people whose lives were destroyed in the global financial crisis um but that that is their modus operandi that's what that's what they're on about they just want to make money yeah so
0: now we're in the midst of a new financial crisis Uh, it's not coming from the financial sector itself but it's it's a it's this virus that we are now living with, yeah. Uh, and I saw a quote from Stephen Schwartzman of of Blackstone that this is this is the moment for them. They are sitting on 150 billion, what they call dry powder. How do you read that?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean that's why I think Push is so uh, important right now, um, the film, because it's it it shows exactly what is about to happen. In fact, Uh, they use all their own language, dry powder, instead of just saying capital or money. Um, But they're poised, there will be a lot of debt floating around that will be sold off cheaply. And they will purchase it, uh, and then try to make uh, money off of it. And that is going to be in the form of real estate again. Um, And that's, that's the other thing that that I like to distinguish, they're not actually buying the home, or, you know, the apartment building, they actually buy debt, and then they get it cheap. And then they make money from having bought the debt cheap. So uh, and then the 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 rent that people are paying is in fact, this income stream for the private equity firm, it's the dividend to the shareholder. Uh, so it's uh, it converts housing and home absolutely into a financial instrument. Hmm.
0: Saskia Sassen talks about incomprehensive language. Is that something? I mean, because that's something I've always been like. You know, when 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 the financial experts say, "Hey, listen to us. We understand. You don't understand," and then they use a language which makes most of us say, "Okay, I don't really get it." Is there any point
1: with that? Yeah. You know? Well, I think that's right. I mean, it's like forming an an exclusive club. They 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 use their own language, and then that acts as a barrier um, for sure. But you were always, when you're, you were filming Push, you were always saying to me, you know, we need to find our language. And I think you have some sense, and I, I think you're right about that, that, of the power of just the language. Um, and so, I mean, I sort of set out to use language to combat their language and their concepts. So I use the language of human rights to address their language of asset classes and dividends and dry powder.
0: Yeah, there is, uh, I mean, also a new word or expression I've, I've learned. It's called REITs. It's like oh, uh, yeah. real estate investment trusts. And then I understand that these REITs are actually the houses we see shooting up in the film in toronto in vancouver in london in berlin wherever so it's it's like a new form of 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 building homes can you talk about the reits
1: yeah, I mean, it uh, REITs is actually also a financial instrument. Uh, so what they do, as I understand it, and maybe we'll have another podcast specifically on REITs and get a real expert in. Um, but they, they basically group together a whole bunch of uh, mortgages and, and um, of different buildings, different units, all under one trust. And then everyday people can invest in that trust. That person who's making the investment, they become a shareholder. They don't know what building they're investing in necessarily. They're investing in this whole grouping. And it's advertised as a way to own property without ever having to go and view a property and without having to manage a property so it's that's how it's sold to investors and you get a very good return on your investment and they try to guarantee certain returns much higher than if you just park your money in a bank
0: yeah and then what i also understand there's another end of that because many of these buildings shooting up have their own investors coming in it's a part of the game and we visited a place in london called elephant park Well, we're walking through
1: the new buildings, the new estate, which is now called Elephant Park, which
2: replaces the Haygate estate, where I used to live. A bit of empty feeling.
1: Like, look, so many, all of them. Yeah.
0: The uh, flats, many of the homes in this part of the development were sold in Hong Kong and Singapore. When they're sold overseas, they're not necessarily sold for people to live in. They're sold as investments. This is like, I mean, we were walking around in, in Elephant Park, which was former Haygate Estate, which was actually a big housing complex, social housing built in the 80s, and it was torn down in 2014. So they had a very short lifespan. People were living there and there, most of the tenants were just kicked out that's right and nobody knew where they, what what happened to them and then we 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 followed the construction of this new elephant park and when we are there there is nobody living in the apartments so then we understand that people have been buying apartments like they're buying um socks from H&M you know in three packs or 10 packs or you know it's like so people are sitting somewhere else and they're investing in London so it's the, the it's not the REITs, is they're actually buying apartments. And this we, we also see in many other cities around the world. I've seen it a lot in, like in Bangkok and other Southeast Asian cities. You actually evict thousands of people and then you build a big condo, luxury. They're always called luxury condos. But many of these luxury condos are known for the people in the cities as dark towers. It's kind of a provocation and very sad.
1: Absolutely. And I... I, th- I think we do have to ask or should be asking, does it make a difference when someone buys property, let's say en masse, like you said, like a, you know, a pack of socks from H&M? Uh, when they have no intention of living there does that make a qualitative difference to our cities and I think it does I think the level of interest is different the kind of interest is different the commitment to the community is obviously not necessarily there and I mean that's part of what disturbs me about all of this uh, because when people are wanting to live in a neighborhood they want I mean they're looking for a certain thing in a neighborhood housing is not just about your little home it's about who your is neighbor- neighbors are and the local store and the news agent and you know etc the baker and and those folks who are doing that kind of investing don't have that in mind they're not trying to build community
0: No, it's interesting that you know when we're in london it's it's not it's not only the the working class areas that are are hit it's actually also where the 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 sons and daughters of the lords are living so we were in in knightsbridge and we enter into a building that the squatters took over. And uh, right. let's listen to the squatters for a while.
2: I think this place has been empty since 2003. Something like that, yeah, since the last time anybody yeah, actually operated in it.
1: Lots mm-hmm. of empty buildings about and lots of homeless about, so it just makes sense. Who bought this place? Do you know? Like he Mr. Qatari, yeah, he's
2: apparently. From Qatar. he's, he, apparently he's a, 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 an ex-army general from Qatari.
1: Yeah. And do you know Matt, how much he paid for this place?
2: £25 million. So. Right. <laughs> Ludicrous.
1: You know, um, how many homeless people are there? How many uh, empty buildings? It's just... Do you have a demand as a group? Are you guys like organised at all?
0: Uh, yeah, just to start housing people, basically,
2: or we'll keep keep squatting these multi-million pound buildings mm. until something is sorted.
1: Mm. Occupy Belgravia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We will keep we will keep getting these places, and we will keep doing it until something is sorted out. Who else is going to help them? Someone, someone's, someone's got to do this. Mm. <laughs>
0: Well, there are some conflicts out there, and it's kind of obvious. This house, we were, we were in it, and it's, I mean, I don't know, it wasn't really big, but, and it was bought so many years ago for 25 million pounds. So it's like totally, I, it's very hard to understand why do you pay so much money for a house that is kind of shitty, and you don't use it. It's been been empty for years. And and ra- this is very close to Buckingham Palace, where the Queen lives or supposedly lives. Yeah. <laughs> and uh because that's also probably also an empty building, a lot of it. But anyway, uh so there's a lot of these empty houses very close to to Buckingham Palace. Mm. But but why? Can do you understand this?
1: they're trading off of these units and doing all sorts of financial deals using these assets as uh, security. And so they don't want it to be occupied. And then if they do want to sell it, it's much better if it's uh, unoccupied.
0: We met, I mean, we met in the film. We also meet uh, the Italian uh, writer, Roberto Mm. Saviano. And he talks very much about the tax havens. The tax havens is a place where the... The legal capitalism meets and merge with the uh, illegal capitalism the the drug money the refugee smugglers that kind of money and that money is also then enters with our banks into our societies and he also explained that the criminal money actually need they like to pay extra much for a house because yeah. if they pay more they will probably sell to themselves between different tax havens they find a way to 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 move more money into a society into a safer place which then is could be the uk yeah. or it could also be other safe havens i mean uh, so it's but the criminals are entering entering into our, our our cities and of course that's something we're also going to dig deeper into mm-hmm. in, in in a in in a future podcast because i think the criminal money is something we don't really know how big it is because the thing with criminal money is as soon as you've been able to launder the money, it's just money. Then it acts as any legal money, you know. And, and of course, that illegal money, the criminal money, is competing with us, the citizens. It's pumping up the values of our homes, making our cities much more expensive. And in the case of London, for example, it means that there are so many empty buildings in a city where there's a huge need for for homes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the dodging of money. I mean, I I do think a podcast that goes deep into this would be excellent, because there's also, you know, the use of tax havens. So the dodging of paying taxes, which is a kind of corruption. uh, And then the loss to the state. And what does that mean? You know, I read a figure in Canada, $25 billion is lost uh, annually. Because of tax havens, and so, and what does that mean for the state and the state's ability to provide public services to people, including, you know, affordable housing?
0: And for, I mean, now in the crisis, everybody expects the government to help out. That's also, right, help exactly. companies who don't, companies who are actually very good at not paying taxes. Mm-hmm. That they have a big departments of their companies just, you know, tax lawyers. You know, they're mm-hmm. trying to find ways not to pay to pay less. And still, the rest of us has to pay because we don't have these. We we can't do it.
1: Ex- no, exactly. And what I love about that clip that we just listened to of this homeless group in Belgravia um, is, in this point in time with the pandemic going on, how obscene is it that there would be vacant homes and people living on the streets? risking their lives of getting this pandemic getting this virus you know it's i think that's one thing about the pandemic it's exposed how um corrupt it is to allow this to continue in in my opinion i mean to have all these empty places and and people suffering in shelters and afraid of getting a virus that could kill them i mean yeah
0: you know what i i agree <laughs> i agree <laughs> it is actually I mean, the, the, the lack of moral is something that it's shakes me really a lot because we are all taught to be moral. That's what we they teach us in school, you know. And that's what my mother told me to be: moral and responsible, be kind, and being a Swede, it's like the moral of Pippi Longstocking, also, you know. And so Absolutely. it's like a, if you're if you're not so if you're if you're really strong, you have to be extra kind. And here we have the biggest and the strongest just exploiting others. And that's not so nice. We should play this clip of, of Saskia, just to yeah, just let her round this it, off, yeah. because it's, it's kind of interesting.
2: One way of putting it is, this is not at all about housing. The, the buildings, they function as assets. You want those houses to be empty and unused. Because then you can play with them. Can you imagine? I mean, these dark, empty buildings. And they are making money. So when people think, oh, poor investor, something went wrong. Hell no.
0: Yeah, hell no. It's uh, it's, a... And and this is something that still buggers me, how you can make money out of empty buildings. But now I understand a little bit better, because if you can enter your money into a place like London or New York, you can actually then go to the bank and say, I have this asset, and with this asset I can get more money. That's right. And if you have money, money is very cheap. That's what all rich people say, money is cheap. So then you can get more money and you can invest it in new places. And then you're inside. So an empty apartment in New York or London or any other city is actually something you can make money out of.
1: That's right. It's also, uh, yeah, it took me a while. It, it, I still don't totally get it, but conceptually I think I can I can figure that out. But, you know, there's another thing we haven't talked about, uh, but where empty apartments are lucrative for these big financial or institutional actors. I mean, another way that this is playing itself out in cities around the world is big asset management firms, many of them uh, based in Europe, some from Sweden, like Akelius. There's also Vonovia. There's um, one in Germany, Deutsche Wohnen, that's really huge. What they do is they'll purchase an entire building that is a little rundown in an what they would call an undervalued neighborhood. And they make some modest up. Upgrades, and we we heard in the clip, Jonathan Gray said, when they bought the family homes in the U.S., they spent twenty five thousand dollars upgrading them. I mean, it's not a lot of money that they spend. So it's cosmetic upgrades that these landlords do, or corporate institutional investors. And then they raise the rents based on having done these modifications. And it's often much easier for them to raise the rents if they can get the tenant out and have an empty unit and then bring someone new in and the rents are, are they, they're able to raise them. And that's that's causing huge, they call it rent eviction in, in many places. It's causing a huge problem in cities around the world.
0: It's interesting because, as I said, money is it's cheap if you have money, but it also, and we know that on the world stock markets, 50% of all the money are pension funds. So there is like a, a deep sea of, of money out there, and and of course all that money wants to grow. That's the job of the asset managers to grow the money. And then of course you have Blackstones so and you have others, and and also these companies that you mentioned. So it means that that these companies can move in a very in a new way. So in the film, we talk about Blackstone being, in a very few years, the the biggest private owner of Swedish low-income housing. When we released the film, just a few months later, they sold everything in Sweden to this German company called Vonovia. Vonovia is now even bigger. They have 50,000 units in Sweden. And, And this is since a year back. Mm. So from zero to 50,000, there is a company called Heimstaden, which is owned by a, a big Norwegian money, but it's actually have its head office here in Malmo, Sweden. When we were in Prague showing push, we found out that Heimstaden had just bought 44,000 apartments from Blackstone, who just had bought it from a billionaire who was a friend of the former president because it was the old coal miners' uh, homes. And, and the coal miners paid very little rent. But the interesting thing is when these guys are buying 44,000 or 50,000 units somewhere, what are they telling their investors? Because they will always go to investors and say, hey, we have a very good deal coming up. Do you want to join us? Do you want to put some money into your, this business? And of course, then they will have, their sales pitch will be, This is the rent today. We can push it up. This will be a really good long-term business. Please join us. Yeah, absolutely. And their good business means more stress on people because it will be much more expensive to... To survive in these cities.
1: No, that's exact that's absolutely right. That is the business model. And I've read those prospectus, the briefs that they provide when they're setting up real estate investment trusts to try to get people to buy into the trust. And that's exactly what they do. They'll say, you know, we can almost guarantee a thirteen percent. Return higher often um, uh, on this real estate investment trust, and uh, it's very clear in the materials that they derive that from increasing rents. I mean, yeah. that's it's just clear. Um, but
0: this, you know, the monster we're talking about has mm. many faces, and it's it's not the same person. Of course, it's very it's very it's maybe strange language to talk about the monster. But we were in Chile. And filming, you were on an official mission for the UN. And, and uh, we could see in Valparaiso, a very beautiful city, but it's very much a working class city, how big condos were coming in, taking grip of parts of the town. And it was not building for the people who, live, who lived there. And actually, many of these construction sites were also illegal. They were, they were started without uh, building permits, but they were still ongoing. So this is kind of some, some criminal behavior that we see a lot. Um, so let's play a clip from the film where you're a little bit gloomy looking over Valparaiso.
1: Well, this is what I'm seeing happening around the world. The buying up of land, the displacement of the poorest people, and the putting up of luxury... Uh, units that are not actually for the people who live in the community.
0: So I, I was back to Valparaiso actually showing the film uh, just before the, the virus closed the airports. I was there and, and I met the, the, the people from that neighborhood and they were actually, one lady stood up in the audience, you know, crying, she said, we lost, we lost the battle, now it's here. And I went up to that hill the day after. And that condo was built. It looked really ugly, <laughs> and there was nobody living there. And then I went up to. There was a few blocks further up. There was. Remember, they told us a story about they. Yes. They, they were actually burned down a whole block, in a yeah. way to get people out, and that block was now also. The, the, I talked to the doorman. It was like two people living in the home in that place it's it's very it's very brutal but you in your work as a un rapporteur i know you've been to a lot of countries in the south you've been to an official mission to india to nigeria you've been to uh, egypt, egypt. <laughs> yeah so tell me is, what what mm-hmm. is is this something you see on a global
1: scale oh ab- absolutely i mean it it's happening everywhere it has different slightly different manifestations of course in each Uh, country, uh, but it is present in every country that I go to. And people are often surprised. Oh, they'll say to me, oh, no, you're describing a northern western phenomenon. Uh, But in fact, that's not the truth at all. Um, There is uh, speculative investment in residential real estate the world over it is the biggest business in the world it the the value of residential real estate is you know 163 trillion dollars it's massive um and it's but it's just you know not known and and every city i have been to in the south and and the north it's the same thing where the cost of housing is escalating and incomes are stagnant and that's only worse now, right, with the pandemic.
0: Yeah, and we should know that Blackstone and others are also really big in India. and I mean, they are all Absolutely. over the world. It's, it's a global company. Yes. Uh, but this, with forced evictions and, and violence, is something mm. we normally connect with the South. But we met in Toronto. This guy, you will go to listen to him.
1: Welcome to my nightmare. This is, uh, yeah, cell block one. This is my place. We've had no heat all through April, no hot water all through April. There's water leaking underneath the sink. It's just, you know, I need a whole new window because the windows don't close, they don't match. New owners have taken over. We haven't met them, we haven't seen them, we don't know anything about them. It could be Frosty the Snowman for all I know. (laughs) And uh, they're, they're, they're trying everything to evict us.
0: Well, and he was afraid of being put to sleep under the stars, that's well, right with a having pissing on, on him, he said in the film. Uh, so this is Canada, where the winters are really cold, a lot of people sleeping in the streets. So you've been very active around this now in the COVID mm. crisis. Mm. Have you been successful?
1: <laughs> um. I don't think I've been successful. Um, I'm trying to amplify voices around this. Um, That fellow, the Frosty the Snowman fellow, um, he was living in uh, really the kind of housing that is one step away from homelessness. And in fact, I learned that his building had been bought uh, by one of these asset management firms. It may have been Achilles, but I'm not sure. Um, And they were converting it into these groovy, like studio apartments for students um so you know where they and and the student housing market is big dollars for these for these investors that's one of the newest areas that they're moving into um in the in the the pandemic should have ended homelessness and all of these everyone's housing should be stabilized anyone with housing should it should just be stabilized right because we know if you're homeless you can contract the virus but that's not at all what's happening Uh, i am in the midst of um Big discussions with mayors uh, from around the country in Canada to try to get them to understand um, the threat of financialization and these big actors and the link with homelessness, which is a link a lot of people don't don't make.
0: Mm. So Leilani, I mean, our podcast—it's our first podcast. How do you feel? It's, is it okay?
1: It's great. Is it great? Yeah, good. Well, I mean, I, you know, it's like, I
0: would—it would be nicer to be in the same room, but that's course. that's. That's the reality for a lot of people right now. There is a favorite quote in the film that uh, (laughs) there was always someone in the audience, someone in the world would raise their hand and say, but this Leilani, does she really love capitalism? And so let's play the quote, It's because it's good. It's you.
1: I don't believe that capitalism itself is hugely problematic. Is unbridled capitalism in an area that is a human right, problematic, yes. And I think that's what differentiates housing as a commodity from gold as a commodity. Gold is not a human right, housing is.
0: I think this is a very interesting quote from you and, and I, I also agree with it. Um, and then, of course, you can have very deep uh, philosophical debates on on how good or bad capitalism is. I I believe that this your mission and your work is should be. And I and we meet people who are not l- radical leftists. I mean, with people from all sides can also agree on that. What what's happening right now is problematic. And your point with putting out that housing, a a home is not a commodity. It's actually a game changer. It's a change of language. So, and and we can hear that when the film now has been traveling around the world. And we can talk more about that in some other podcast about Mm. the effects of already we can see of your work and and the film's uh, impact. Um, But the change of language is something that you've been very successful in.
1: Mm. (laughs) Trying. Very hard. <laughs> yeah, I think you do it quite fine.
0: And Leilani, as a global director of The Shift, your new uh, home. So, how do we, how, how, do, can you give us a short one on, on, the, on The Shift?
1: Sure. So, The Shift is a global movement to secure the right to housing. And I'm working in partnership with um, United Cities and Local Governments, which is this big, International Network of Cities, and I'm working with a couple of different entities at the United Nations to try to keep up the pressure internationally to claim housing as a human right and to push against housing being treated and talked about and interacted with as a commodity. Um, and, you know, I, I never anticipated finishing being rapporteur and there being a pandemic <laughs> and making the work so relevant. But I really, I think we're in a very special moment right now where we have an opportunity to really make it clear what's necessary uh, to to save homes for people. Yeah,
0: and I think the only way to to change the world is actually to talk about things and try to understand uh, the structures of things and that's that's also what i'm interested in 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 my work and I hopefully this podcast can be a part of that because we need we need better arguments but we also need better understanding so uh this is the first podcast we are trying to we will try to go back and and dig deeper into some of these issues we now just touched very uh superficially on and we will Keep trying to understand what's going on out there. Um, if you haven't seen Push, the film, you can find it on, you go to the website of our company called wgfilm.com. wgfilm.com. It's on Vimeo on demand. Uh, and it's accessible in most parts of the world, uh, still not in the UK and the US, but will it will happen. And, uh, and that's due to that we actually have distribution on, on theaters coming up so that we have to prioritize thank you Leilani and I will not ask you about how it is in Canada right now I'm sure it's really boring it's uh, totally boring <laughs> I, I will soon bike to the sea in here in because it's sunny and nice and so I will send you a picture from the waterfront so, the thanks Frederick. thank you very much